If you turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, Luke 1, and we begin the Savior's saga. As you look at Luke chapter 1, as we begin this, what will be a probably seven or eight part study, we begin with the announcement, the birth announcement. Now, for those of you here in, in the room, you, you may have gotten one of those birth announcements from one of your friends, or maybe you've given out a birth announcement and you sent out a card and, you know, it's we're expecting or, you know, we're, we're going to have a, a party next week to do a gender reveal. Well, this is the biblical equivalent, except God sends the angel Gabriel from heaven. So it's a little bigger than your card. Amen. And so we're going to pick up in verse 18, reread that from last week, and we're going to see these two amazing angelic proclamations of two very different baby boys that are about to be born into the world and usher in the age of grace. And so how would you join me? We'll pray and we'll pick up in verse 18. Father, thank you. Thank you for this incredible story. This is not just a story made up by man. This is the truth about the birth of both John the Baptist and you, Jesus. And we have come that you would speak into our lives the Christmas message as we uh, take this month, really, to just honor you, Lord Jesus. And we ask that you'd be in the midst of all that is said today. Pray that our ears would be attentive to what your spirit would speak into us as your church. Lord, thank you for the announcement that was made by Gabriel that ultimately would lead to you, Jesus, descending from heaven to be born of a virgin. Lord, to usher in the age of grace. We're thankful for that grace that has come to us who believe. Pray that you would increase, Lord, our heart's understanding of how great that grace is today. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 18, rereading just one verse. And Zechariah said to the angel, remember they're still in the holy place, so they're inside of the temple in the first part, what is called the sanctuary. Uh, so the bread, the table of showbread is there in the altar of incense, which the angel Gabriel is standing next to, and the giant menorah. So here's Zacharias, this aged man. He's still inside, and Gabriel is about to speak to him. And before he does that, Zacharias says, well, how shall I know this? And I believe there's a couple of things that you can draw from this passage. You're going to have two birth announcements. One is received with unbelief, and the other is received with belief. And I think Zacharias is still functioning a little bit uh, in his humanness, in his unbelief. And so he says, how can I know this? For I'm an old man, my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. And so when you see the, the angel Gabriel, there are only three named angels in all of the Bible. There's Gabriel, there's Michael, uh, you'll see him in, in Daniel and Isaiah both. And there is one angel that we'd prefer didn't ever come onto the scene, but nonetheless was a cherubim of the Most High, the angel Lucifer. Those are the only three that we know that have names. And whenever they show up on the scene, it's a big deal. And so Gabriel is on the scene. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. That in and of itself would generally be enough, I think, for most of us. That, that God would care so much to send Gabriel to us personally to speak a message to us, 
might cause us to think a little differently about the situation than we would a normal work day in the temple. Amen? But behold, and I believe this is in reference to his basic unbelief. He's still not quite trusting what the angel's saying. Behold, you will be mute. This is a pastor's worst nightmare, not able to speak (laughs) until the day these things take place. This is an aged priest who served the Lord well, who's standing in the temple, and he's going to get an announcement from heaven, and the next thing is going to be said, and you're not going to be able to tell anybody. You're going to be mute. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And so we're given a little insight into the two different responses that we'll see here, one from Zacharias and one, of course, from Mary. This old priest is dumbfounded as he gets this angelic announcement of the birth of this child. And you might imagine him saying, look, let's be clear here. We're really old. There's no possible way. So you can't really fault Zacharias for having a couple of questions. I'm pretty sure most of us would have questions as well. I don't know how many of you have had children in your late 30s or maybe your early 40s. Even that to us today is like, well, that's Abraham and Sarah time right there. But now imagine you've doubled that, and you're now in your 80s, and, and, and an angel from heaven comes and says, and oh, by the way, your, your wife's going to have a baby. I, I think we can excuse a little bit of unbelief here. And basically, he's saying, you know, your, your wife's going to need some quiet. She's going to need some rest because she's going to be pregnant at 80, so uh, you're not going to be able to talk. She's going to be able to get all of the things she wants to say to you said. Now, we don't know the reason why, and I think it's part of the beauty of this story. God is the sovereign king, amen? And he simply does what he knows is best. And in this case, uh, Zacharias needs to learn a little bit of a lesson, and so he says, look, you're not going to be able to tell anybody. He's tongue-tied for the next nine months. He comes out of the temple, and you can imagine what's burning inside of his heart. And isn't this so true with us? We have things that are burning inside of our hearts, but we really don't know what to say about them. The Lord does something in your life, and you know it was the Lord, and you want to tell people you're not quite sure what you need to say. And I think this this picture of Zacharias is like that. And I think the forerunner that's about to come, John the Baptist, is going to be born through this family. This is a big deal. This is a prophetic moment. And Zacharias has been let in a little bit on what's going on in heaven. And at the same time, you, you can kind of see that now Zacharias is going to get some additional information here in the accuracy with which this angel speaks. Verse 21, it goes on to say, and the people waited for Zacharias. Now imagine the scene here, because this is important for us to contextualize this. The scene is the temple. The temple is on a raised platform. It's above the court of the priest, which the court of the priest would have the bronze laver, which would be where they would wash their hands, and this big altar of sacrifice that would have stood a couple of meters high, and that's where they would have put the sacrifices. There's all kinds of priests milling around out there. And beyond that is the court of men, and beyond that is the court of the women, and beyond that's the court of the Gentiles, and beyond that is the priestly precincts where they would do business and buy and sell all of the the doves and the sticks and things necessary to go into the temple compound. And so this this is a mass of humanity that's waiting out there. 
This isn't like Zacharias is by himself. He is literally speaking for the nation Israel. He's gone inside to make intercession for them before the, the, the curtain that divided off the Holy of Holies. And the people outside are actually waiting for him to say something, and he can't. And so here he is, and they marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. It's like, come on, man, just get the prayers over with. Get back out here and tell us what's happening. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. Now, we don't know exactly what his face looked like. Like, maybe he's like, uh, you know, kind of has a crazed look on his face. We don't know. For he beckoned to them and remained speechless. And what it seems to indicate here in the original text was he's actually making signs like, you know, I can't speak or, you know, he's doing one of these things. He's trying to tell them, look, I'd like to tell you what happened, but I can't. Now, here's the problem. He's not done yet. He's backed his way out. So what would happen during that day and time if you were serving your course and you've gone inside and you've offered up prayers, as soon as you got done, you would back out of the holy place. So he's moving backwards. He would get to the steps. There would be pitchers of water inside the holy place. He was to pick up the pitcher of water and then he would go outside once he passed through the final door, then so he would not turn his back on God, he would turn around after he got outside and he would pour the water on the steps and then he would pronounce the priestly blessing on them. The Lord bless thee, the Lord keep thee, the Lord make his face shine upon thee. Give you peace. He, he pronounced the ironic blessing from number six. He can't say a thing. They're all like, this is the lamest priestly service we've ever been to. It's like, what are you doing? You're messing the whole thing up. Because this was extremely regimented. And if you didn't do it, they would perceive, wow, there's something seriously wrong with this guy. He, he can't do what he's supposed to do. He can't say what he's supposed to say. 23, and so it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, which would have been that very moment, that he departed to his house. And now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And she hid herself, excuse me, for five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me, and in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach from among the people. It must have been hard for Zacharias. He's like, he wants to say something. He wants to have a word for the congregation. and he, he wants to do what he's supposed to do. He wants to give that priestly blessing. But he's saying, look, I, I can't talk. I can't speak. There's nothing I can do. And, as he's, and he's standing there before the people and then gets home. And you can imagine his wife's you know, going, well, how was work, honey? You know, how is the temple today? And he's like, you know, I can't talk. You can almost imagine, you know, maybe some out there in the congregation are thinking, well, that's what old priests do. They forget everything. You know, sometimes that's the greatest fear we who occupy the pulpit have is as we, as we age. I don't know if any of you have noticed that your memory is a little shorter than it used to be. 
And especially when you do multiple services like we do here and you're looking, did I already say that? You know, you kind of you scratch your head a little bit every once in a while. Maybe they think that he's got a little bit of pastoral Alzheimer's going on here or something. I don't know. But I know this, he's super frustrated. He, he, he just wants to say something and he can't. And as time passes, he just simply has to trust God. He's not in the limelight This isn't going to happen. He's going to go to his country home. The world went its way. The people left. They're all thinking whatever they think. And he's going to have to essentially wait nine months for the Lord to vindicate that he wasn't crazy. That he wasn't having a senior moment there on the temple steps. I think this is beautiful because God very often has something he wants to say, but he's waiting for a very specific point in time to say it. He's got a message for the people and he wants to speak that message to them but he is waiting for an exact moment in time where it is the perfect time to speak that message. And so what really is happening here is the clock of grace begins to tick off its first few seconds. Jesus is on his way. He's about to be born into the world. And ultimately, as he's born into the world, the world through him can be saved. Amen? He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. And so the age of grace, the clock, you can, you can almost see it. I don't know whether there is one in heaven and it's ticking, but it's almost as if it's here. The time is finally here. Now, the reason it's important to think on this for a moment is the promise was originally made to Abraham 1,500 years earlier. You can clearly see this promise. The whole world through you, Abraham, one day will be blessed. And there's all the prophets, Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah, Hosea, Amos, all of them begin to speak these prophetic pictures. Here's what's going to happen when Messiah comes. Now the day has actually come where all those things, where God has been silent for 400 years. And now they get to that point in time where God's speaking to them again and he begins by sending Gabriel to tell them about the birth announcement. The second announcement is what we affectionately call the Annunciation. And if you travel uh, with us on one of our Israel trips, we, we go through normally Nazareth, and you'll see up on the hill the Church of the Annunciation. This is supposedly the location where, where Jesus' uh, Jesus' birth announcement is made to Mary. Now, whether it is or not, we don't know. Basically, there's churches everywhere uh, in, in Israel, and they kind of all compete very often. It's like, no, he was born. No, he was born over here. He's born over there. But, but as you go, you, you'll, you'll see this gigantic golden dome sitting up on top of this hill. And interestingly enough, that is not at all what happened. There, there was no announcement like you and I would make. I mean, imagine if you were just announcing that the, you know, the president was coming or something like that. I mean, it'd be on the news media. There'd be a flyby with jets. We'd have all kinds of things going on. This is completely quiet. It, it's made in the presence of exactly one person, and we pick it up in verse 26. And now in the sixth month, the sixth month of Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's pregnancy, that the angel Gabriel was sent by God 
to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And the accuracy here is really important because this would be the equivalent of and the Lord will be born in a city of Kern County called Inyo Kern or Ridgecrest or China Lake or I mean you're talking about the middle of nowhere this is not Jerusalem this is not the holy city this is not Athens this is not Rome this is the middle of nowhere and it isn't a city we think of city like the city of Los Angeles or Dallas or New York Chicago Paris Rome we think of cities being these large population centers this city probably had less than 5,000 people in it it was a village it was scattered all over a hillside it was anything but a city but it absolutely was in the region of Galilee and it absolutely was the exact same place that John's gospel records writing through Nathaniel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was known to be a place that no one wanted to even admit being from. That no one ever came from that amounted to anything. Which is exactly, by the way, what the prophet Isaiah said about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the Messiah. There would be nothing that we should desire him. He would come from nowhere. He would be, in effect, a human nobody. From a nobody family in a nobody place. And so here's the announcement. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary in case you don't think it means virgin here this is Parthenos which always means a woman who has never had a child and so make no mistake he's clearly saying this woman is going to have a baby and she's never had one and having come in the angel said to her rejoice highly favored one And because you and I in English wouldn't say highly begraced one or highly graced one, we would use the term favor. The word here is actually grace. Highly graced one. The one upon whom God's grace rests would be another way to look at it. The Lord is with you and blessed are you among women. Notice it doesn't say you're different than all other women. It doesn't say you're going to be the co-author of salvation. It says among women on this earth, you're blessed. You're going to get to do something that no one else will ever be able to claim to have done. You're going to bring the one and the only son of God into this world. Now, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting is this? I'm thinking so. You're in the middle of nowhere, in a nowhere town. Your husband is a nobody. You are a nobody. Nobody knows that you're even a nobody, much less, you know, there's no, there's no register for, you know, all the famous people. There isn't a who's who of Nazareth. 
And here comes Mary, and an angel appears. And they're, they're thinking, you know, we kind of live next door to Samaria, and nobody wants to go to Samaria, and so nobody really wants to go to Nazareth. Nazareth was a way stop. If you were traveling from Jerusalem, and if you went the high route, which would have went through the Judean foothills, and you headed north from Jerusalem, you could descend and go down to the east, down in the Jordan River Valley, and make it to Jericho, or you could travel along through the Judean foothills. You would eventually come to Samaria. Samaria was the land that was inhabited, inhabited by those remnants of what happened during the Assyrian conflict when the nation Israel had 10 northern tribes taken into captivity and assimilated into Assyria. And in order to do that, what Assyria did was they killed off all the men, and then the Assyrian men had children with Jewish women. Those were the Samaritans. So nobody wanted to go through Samaria. After you went through Samaria, then you would come to the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Megiddo, that place that one day all the nations will get, gather together to come against the Lord. But at that time, there had been a city called Megiddo that had been inhabited for at least 2,000 years. It had been inhabited recently by the Canaanites, the Jebusites, and so you would come to Megiddo, and then you would cross the plains of Jezreel, and you would see another mountain range on the other side of the Jezreel Valley, and that's where Nazareth was. But because Nazareth was elevated, and the only water they had was from a single spring, Nazareth was never going to be large. It was basically a way stop as you descended down to Cana, eventually to Magdala, and to the Via Maris which went around the Sea of Galilee. And so this was truly a nowhere place. It was a place that people went through, not went to. And so here is Gabriel, one of three named angels in the entire Bible, and only two of them are good, that stops into this nowhere place to give an announcement to Mary, to be grace Mary with this information. And notice that Mary is of the royal line of David, whose home city, exactly as Micah declared, is none other than Bethlehem, which is the reason they will eventually head south to go register in the city of their birth. That's why they end up in Bethlehem, and that's why Jesus ends up born exactly where the Bible says he would be born prophetically. The recipient of this announcement notice is none other than Mary, an insignificant poor couple, a carpenter's wife. She walked into their, their house. You know, we are so blessed in this country. When you go into someone's house, typically there's going to be living room furniture and dining room furniture, and there's going to be a kitchen that has a stove and a fridge and a microwave and you might even have a convection microwave and you know you've got a nice cooktop and an oven by itself and we not so during that day and time a house was a single room and that single room was also the barn and so if you went in at night into someone's home you would also find all of their valuable animals inside that's so no one could steal them 
And so inside of the house would be, if you had cattle, you might have a cow in there. If you had a donkey, there could be a donkey in there. If you had goats, the goats would be in there. The chickens would be in there. Everyone would be in there. And the furniture was a few sticks crossed over in the form of an X with a third leg with maybe a rock sitting in the top of it. That would have been a recliner. That's the lazy boy of the day. Amen? And so that's where this angel is. He's in this very, very Spartan, crude home. Maybe a couple of goats. Walls of rock and mud. The roof leaked every time it rained. There'd be a small fire. That fire, by the way, was normally grass and animal dung. So I don't know if you have an infuser in your house. That's not what that is. <laughs> Where did this visitor come from? It came from the glories of heaven. He had just stepped out of the glorious city of God. He had come from a place where single gates are made out of pearls, where the streets are paved with gold, where the oceans are made of glass and the walls are made of jasper. And he's like, oh, and by the way, Messiah is going to be born here. That's why Mary is like, are you sure? Really? So again, you can't blame her for a little bit of a, a lapse of faith. And it's in light of that that the angel says, look, Mary, you're endued with grace. You have unmerited favor from God being poured out on your life. This isn't because you're inherently special. You're unique amongst all the women of the earth. But you're going to need the grace of God. And Mary will actually make that profession in her Magnificat. She's going to actually say, my Lord. She's going to pronounce that Jesus is her Lord. But here comes this angel to make this announcement. It's like, Mary, you are highly graced. You're just covered with God's grace. And he begins to give her some assurance. And I, I love this part of this, this birth announcement. Now, before we dig into this, I want to just give you, there is a rhetorical pattern of speech that we use in English called a polysyndeton. And what that simply is, is when you take the conjunction and, and you put it between significant events, when you're speaking this way, each event is added to the previous event. And if there are more than two ands, then all of them are added together it boasts, in essence, of the totality of what's being said. They are all to be taken together as if they are one thing, even though there are unique things being said. And that is exactly the case here. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You found grace with God. You are begraced of God and behold and notice the interjection of the sovereign plans of God. You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great 
and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Amen? He's saying every last one of these things is by force of will of God from heaven and every last thing that the Bible declared about these events will come to pass. So all of the prophetic things that are contained here, which by the way, those six things are all told to you in the Old Testament, that this is what Messiah would do. And the angel comes from heaven and said, I want to give you a birth announcement. You will conceive. You will call him his name, Yehoshua. Jehovah is salvation or Jehovah saves and he will be great. He, he's going to be greater than great. He's going to be the greatest. Amen? And will be called the son of the highest. Who's the highest? That's God the Father. He's going to be his one and only son. So when Isaiah said, God will give us his son. Bingo. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Amen? The angel's saying, he's here. He's coming. And Mary, you're going to bring him into the world. And then Mary said to the angel, can we talk about this? We have some issues. How can this be since I do not know a man? I've never been with a man. I, it's not really going to happen. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you, and therefore also that Holy One who is born will be called, not Joseph's son, Son of God. And now indeed Elizabeth your relative has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. Underline it, here it comes. You ever get to that place to where you're tempted to think God can't do anything about whatever is going on in your life. Amen? For with God nothing will be impossible. Amen? Amen? How many things are impossible with God? No thing. Amen? This is part of the Christmas story, family. Don't miss this part. This is an impossible thing for man. This is no big deal for God. He is the God of the impossible. And then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. She's saying, I surrender. I'm good with that. And again, the angel used the word here, favor or grace. You have found favor with God. I love this part of the story. Because here we get the God of the impossible on the scene. And to see it from God's perspective, I think is so helpful for us. You know, when I look at this, you know, I'd be asking the same questions. It's like, well, how's that going to work out? 
You know, what, what do you mean? When Isaiah prophesied of the coming Messiah, he said, Emmanuel, God with us. So when we sing that God didn't want heaven without us, so he sent heaven down, he sent heaven down. His name's Jesus. Jesus came to this earth. We did not finally exalt our way to heaven and figure it all out. He sent heaven to earth. Born in the manger. To die on Calvary's cross so that we might have our sins forgiven so that we live eternally with him. But for Zacharias and for Mary, they're, they're still having those human thoughts. It's like, well, I don't, I don't know about this. But he's going to rule. He's going to reign. This is from heaven's perspective. This is not earth's perspective on these things. This is heaven's perspective on these things. And so because God gives us enough information and our faith can be reasonable, he's going to say to Mary, look, just so you know this can happen, why don't you go talk to your cousin Elizabeth? Why don't you see what's going on with her? Because if you might remember, she is pretty close to dead. But she's also with child. And that child is going to be a special child. So why don't you go talk with, can you imagine the conversations that Mary and Elizabeth had? Can you imagine the things that went back and forth in their conversations like, can you believe what's going on right now? Yeah, me either. Mary, go check it out. Your cousin is six months pregnant. After a life of barrenness, you see, that was just as big a miracle as what was about to happen with Mary. Maybe for some, that's even a greater miracle. People try to explain away what happened to Mary. But from heaven's perspective, God is still the God of the impossible. And we need to to leave our lives in the hands of the God of the impossible. If God can speak a hundred billion galaxies into existence with the word of his mouth, bringing Jesus through Mary was not that big a deal. Amen? If God can program the DNA of a lion into a lion and the DNA of a lamb in the same 27 pairs of chromosomes, but it'll be completely different, if he can make a lion and a lamb, I'm thinking he can do anything. Amen? You see, chemicals don't store information, by the way. It's impossible for them to do so. And yet God causes that to happen. He programs them. God's the one who takes grace and makes it a reality. God's the one who's graced your life with reality. Without him, there is no reality. People sometimes talk to me, well, you know, you're kind of hanging on that whole Jesus thing. No, I'm more than hanging on that Jesus thing. Jesus is my reality. Without him, I'm nothing. You take him out of the picture, forget it. I'm out. My God is the God of the impossible. 
But that God of the impossible still left them with some questions. Amen? I'm pretty sure Mary's going, well, this is going to be different. Because she still got her family to deal with. Which, by the way, being pregnant when you're betrothed, because she's betrothed, that's the same as being married during that day and time. It was viewed exactly the same. You were already married in the eyes of the populace. The local rabbi is like, oh, this is not a good thing. So there were still some things for her to deal with, but God was bigger than the things. God was bigger than Mary's problems with her family. God was bigger than Mary's problems with the local community that she lived in. God was bigger than the problems she was going to have with the religious authorities. God was bigger than the fact that it looked like she was about to have a baby out of wedlock. God was bigger than all of her problems. Because he's still the God of the impossible. God takes the impossible and makes it possible. It's what he does. How would God do this? Actually tells her. Holy Spirit's going to come and overshadow you. Jesus is going to come from heaven to earth and you're going to carry him around for nine months. Now she's probably going, I don't know that I've ever seen that happen before. It's not like she had all the answers. You ever notice how God doesn't give you all the answers? You ever notice how there are some things you can't figure out? You know what goes in that hole? Faith. That's what goes in that hole. That's where you have to trust God. That's where I have to trust God. That's where every person in this room ultimately has to rest and trust in the God of the impossible. The only answer to impossible things is the God who can do the impossible. So when you start just looking for rational ways to explain it, you're not inviting the God of the impossible to do those things in your life. You're just saying, well, I hope I can figure it out. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to find out there's some things in life you can't figure out. And you're still going to be stuck trying to figure out who is this God of the impossible. And so God gives the answers here right at the end. He says, look, I've got a perfect plan. Here's how it's going to work. doesn't give her all the details. It doesn't say, well, you know, it's going to work like this biologically and this physically. It says, look, we got this. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. God even gives her a little proof. Go talk to Elizabeth. You got problems understanding this? Go talk to Elizabeth and ask her if she hasn't met the God of the impossible. God wasn't powerless to get this done. He's the God of the impossible. So when it looks impossible, it's still possible with him. It looks like it can't work out. It looks like your kids can't come back. It looks like they're too far gone. It looks like your marriage is a wreck. There's still a God who is the God of the impossible. And he's able. The question is, will you rest and trust in him? Will you do what Mary did? I am your maidservant. Will you call Jesus Lord? God had plenty of power. All he was looking for was Mary say yes. God had a plan. Waiting for Mary to say yes to that plan. God would even give her enough to to cling to day by day. There would be proof that these things were true. But you still had to trust. She still had to trust the God of the impossible. And so family... 
as we embark on this Savior saga, as we head towards the birth of our Savior and celebrating the arrival of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I would just simply ask you as we begin this journey, make sure you start, hear this well, make sure you start with the God of the impossible. Because if you'll start with the God of the impossible, there's nothing impossible if you have the God of the impossible as the beginning. It only looks that way from your perspective. But he can do the impossible. And for some of you, you may be facing things that look like they're impossible. Trust those to the God of the impossible. And let him bring a miracle into your life. Because we serve a miracle-working God who can speak into any situation exactly what he wills if we'll just surrender. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. If you need prayer after service, our prayer team's available in the prayer room. If you have yet to meet Jesus, you want to do that today. Love to share that gospel message right over in the corner there. Just walk through that door. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Oh, God, I thank you for all the times in my life where I've seen impossible things and you have come through. Lord, you've never let me down. I've let you down, God, but you've never let me down. You haven't let my family down. We've let you down, but you haven't let us down. And so, Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that just needs a touch from you, the God of the impossible, Lord, would you touch those who are hurting, touch those who are broken, touch those who don't know how they're going to get through this Christmas season. Lord, I pray for those that maybe don't know you today, but did make that that journey, uh, cross the room to the prayer room and just say, I want to know Jesus. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for changing our lives and shaping us and molding us. Pray that we begin this Christmas season, Lord, with our eyes fixed on heaven. Lord, thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for be gracing our lives as you did, Mary. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.